Ісус вже за шість день до Пасхи прибув до Вифані, де жив Лазар, що його воскресив Ісус із мертвих. І для нього вечеру там справили, а Марта прислуховувала. Був вже і Лазар, один із тих, що до столу з ним сіли. А Марія взяла літру мира з найдорожчого нарду пахушого і намастила Ісусові ноги. І волосям своїм його ноги обтерла. І пахуші миро наповнили дім. І говорить один із його учнів, Юда Іскаріотський, що мав його віддати. Чому мира цього за 300 динарів не продано та не роздано Богем? А це він сказав не тому, що, був, що про убоги журився, а тому, що був злодій. Він мав скриньку на гроші та крав те, що вкидали. І промовив Ісус, «Позастав її ти, це вона на день похорону заховала мені». Бо убоги ви маєте завжди з собою, а мене не постійно ви маєте. А на то великий юдеїв повідався, що він там, та й поприходили не за Ісуса самого, але щоб побачити і Лазера, що його воскресив Ісус із мертвих. А первосвященники змовилися, щоб і Лазарові смерть заподіяти, бо багато з юдеїв і за нього відходили, та в Ісуса вірували. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's page 898. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her he his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Thank you, Kate. <coughs> so there's a, uh, there's a show on Netflix that I adore called Stranger Things. If you're, uh, if you're a child of the 80s, you like science fiction and suspense and humor, uh, or if you're just a human being, it's pretty hard to beat. Uh, season three coming in July. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with this show, its, uh, it's storyline tracks the, the friendships and the lives of this group of kids who discover an alternate dimension that they call the Upside Down. And the reason that they call it the Upside Down is that it's actually a mirror image of their own world, except that everything is colored by death and decay. And the way that they discover this alternate uh, dimension is that it begins kind of leaking into or, or breaking into their own dimension. Uh, and, and the way that it does that is through a, a tear in the fabric between these dimensions. And there's really no ignoring it. 
uh, this other dimension, the upside down, it's, it's directly affecting their welfare and the welfare of their family and friends. Uh, it's, it's changing and coloring how they understand their own world. And so they can't just sit idly by. They, they have to respond to this. And, and the way that they respond is by trying to close up this tear between the dimensions. Now, in the show, the, the upside down is clearly this negative thing, right? It's, it's a distorted dimension. It's not how things should be. But today I want us to think about what this story would be like if we flipped the script. Like, What if in their discovery of the upside down, these kids realized that what they had happened upon was actually not upside down at all? What if it was the way things should be? What if it was actually the right side up? What if they discovered a world so full of life that it opened their eyes to the death and decay that distorted their own dimension? And what if this right side up that, that was breaking into their world and with it bringing life and restora- restoration, what would happen? What sort of response would that demand? How would that sort of situation color the way that they live? How would it change the things that they valued? And what if instead of trying to to close up that tear in the fabric of the dimension, what if they sought to make it even bigger? Ushering in the effects of the right side up. If that were the story of Stranger Things, it would be very similar to what Mary of Bethany has experienced in our passage today. In Jesus, Mary has seen this world of life and hope breaking into her dimension of death and decay. And she has no choice but to respond. There's no way around it. And in her response, we see that this inbreaking has changed things for her. Namely, it's changed the things that she values. And instead of trying to stop the inbreaking, she submits to it. And by the way that she lives out her new values, she enables it to spread. And I'm arguing today that we're in need of the exact same thing. I mean, though though there are significant, significant glimpses of created beauty in our world, in our age, we are living in the upside down. We're living in an age that is distorted. And like Mary, each of us needs an encounter with the person of Jesus to change that. And here's why. Because seeing Jesus' value is the only way to change what we value. Seeing Jesus' value is the only way to change what we value. That's the main point of what we're talking about today. Seeing Jesus' value necessarily and functionally changes the things that we value. So understanding his worth is the thing that enables Mary to live in the upside down as though she's a citizen of the right side up. But to get to that main point, uh, I want to first give a little bit of context for what we see Mary doing in this passage. Uh, If you remember from 
John chapter 11, Mary had very recently experienced uh, this sort of oxygen-stealing vacuum that occurs when the curse of death rears its ugly head. She lost her brother, Lazarus, uh, to a devastating illness. We don't know much about it, except that it quickly took his life. And so where Lazarus once was, where, where his presence was and, and his words and his laughter and his touch and his voice, his humor, where all those things once were, now there's this empty void. There's a vacuum. Many of us in here have been touched by that same thing. We've all experienced that vacuum when we've had to come uh, into contact with, with the curse of death. And that same suffocating vacuum had started to deflate Mary's lungs as well. But that's not all that she felt. Alongside her sister Martha, Mary then felt the frustration that comes from experiencing a loss like that while knowing Jesus had the power to prevent it. Uh, in chapter eleven thirty-two, 32, Martha gives voice to this frustration. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They had sent for Jesus and he didn't come. You could have come quickly, she, she thought. When we first summoned you, my brother's gone now and he's been rotting in a tomb for four days. And like she says in 1139, if you go over there to his tomb, you're going to smell his death. It's visceral. She not only felt this dimension of decay in which she lived, but she also felt the frustration of longing for deliverance from Jesus, but not getting it, at least when she wanted it. But then something happened to Mary, didn't it? As Josh covered in the Easter sermon, Jesus eventually did come to visit. And after telling them he was the resurrection and the life, he proved it by calling Lazarus out of his tomb, calling him out of death, out of his burial dressing, and back into life. That's why chapter 12, verse 2, exists in your Bible. It says, Lazarus is reclining at table with Jesus. This, this man whose place at the dinner table was just painfully absent days before, is now sitting there amongst his friends, breaking bread, alive and well, like nothing ever happened. I mean, if you're Mary, this is just too much. I mean, think how you'd feel if, if a relational vacuum in your life was suddenly filled once again by the person that you had lost. Like, what if all of a sudden you could have them back this Thanksgiving? sit across the table from them. If you're Mary, you're sitting there looking at Lazarus going, how, how are you here? How is this even real? You know she was thankful for it, and, and thankful not just because she got her brother back, but because she now knows the one who has power over death. I mean, all her life she'd read in the Torah about Adam and Eve, right? And they're bringing sin into this world, bringing death into the world. And all her life she'd read about God's promises to bring this Savior, this someone who would lift the curse. And now she knows him. She knows him. He's revealed his identity to her in the resurrection of Lazarus. That's the context for Mary's action. She has gone 
from the depths of sorrow to the heights of unquenchable hope. Because in Jesus, the right side up has broken into Mary's life. And so with that context in mind, that, the first thing that I want to talk about this morning is this. If Jesus is the one who is breaking into Mary's life, then we have to see all of her actions as a response to what Jesus has done. If he's the one breaking into her life, we have to see all her actions as a response. This is not a profound observation. Uh, I'm sure most of you came to that conclusion by yourself. But it's really important that we get that. The the genesis of Mary's actions here, they they don't begin with her. She's not extra pious. Uh, she's She's not a showman, showwoman, show person. She had experienced the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. He engaged her. He gave her hope. He served her. He blessed her. Mary could not help but respond. And this is why it's important for us to get. There is a significant difference between you trying to get to God through your actions and God getting to you through his. A significant difference. One is of you. One is of God. One highlights your spiritual deftness. The other highlights your spiritual deadness. One results in empty religion. The other results in God becoming man. You ever tried to to get to know God while under the impression that you're the one always having to chase him down? It's exhausting. I've done that. It results... In you doing a lot of God things without knowing God. You do a lot of God things because you know that's what people who say they're Christians are supposed to do. Meanwhile, you're dead inside. Knowing God by faith means that anything you do in life, you do under the assumption that God is in relentless pursuit of you. He's always the first mover. He's always the one breaking into your life. Now, you might think that God can't possibly be breaking into your life, reaching out to you, because you've not had an encounter quite like Mary's, and I, I feel that. Like, I want, I want to see someone raised from the dead. That would be an encounter. But remember, not all of Jesus' movements toward people in the scriptures are like this. Uh, for, for a swindler named Zacchaeus, Jesus just went to his house, spent time with him. The book of Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection, tells us there was this lady named Lydia going about her business. She was a, a seller of purple goods, right? Held a normal nine to five, just like the rest of us. And this is, this is how she encountered Jesus. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That simple. The Apostle Paul is preaching about Christ crucified. Lydia hears him. The Spirit makes her heart leap at the good news of Jesus, and nothing for Lydia would ever be the same again. So if you doubt God's pursuit of you this morning, I got to ask you, 
Have you ever heard someone utter the words, Christ died for the ungodly? Christ died for the ungodly. Have you ever heard about Christ from a friend? Have you ever read about him in the scriptures? And are you sitting here this morning breathing in undeserved oxygen because of the patient mercy of God? If that's you, God's breaking into your life. Don't ignore these simple things. That's the inbreaking of Christ that demands a response. And if we're going to understand Mary's actions this morning, that's where we have to start. If we want to relate to God and we want to know him, you have to start there. He breaks into our lives. He is the first mover. And thereafter, everything is a response to what he's done and what he's doing. But what does this response look like? Uh, Since we're broken people, sometimes our ability to respond to Jesus in healthy ways uh, is short-circuited. And so it's really, really helpful to have scenes like this where Jesus basically says, this right here is what it looks like to have a genuine response to who I am. And there's a handful of things you could say about what Mary's doing here. Uh, But the one big overarching characteristic that I want us to see this morning is this. Because Mary sees Jesus' value, what she values is transformed. Because Mary sees Jesus' value, what she values is transformed. Read with me in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So Mary takes something expensive, this nard, it's, it's Indian perfume, Um, that that Judas later says in verses 4 and 5 could be sold for nearly a year's wages. That's what 300 denarii is. A year's wages. And she anoints Jesus' feet with it. Then she takes her own hair, which the Apostle Paul refers to as a woman's glory, and she wipes his feet with it. See what she's doing? She's taking the things that would be considered her most valuable assets and she's showing that they pale in comparison to the man who's sitting in front of her. His dirty feet are more valuable to Mary than her most precious assets. What's happening to her is that Jesus is becoming what she values most, and so her perceived value of everything else she owns is turned on its head. It's kind of like when you get new clothes, right? You, you had no idea how ratty your old clothes were until you saw how the new ones fit, how bright their colors are. Before she knew Jesus, maybe that perfume sat up on a prominent shelf in her home untouched and admired, right? Her most prized possession. But after she sees that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, she's all of a sudden willing to pour it out on his dirty feet as though it were tap water. And then, oops, there's a little too much. Let me wipe up the excess with my hair. The value of Jesus is changing the perceived value of everything else. This sounds a lot 
like Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in a field. Do you remember his parable? It goes like this. He says, once there was a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And that man sold everything he owned in order to buy the field so that he could have the treasure that was in it. I mean, why, why did he sell everything he owned? Not because he enjoys suffering. Not because he likes a good old-fashioned vow of poverty. He sold everything because he found a treasure that made everything else he owned look inconsiderable. That man and Mary, they have seen something they cannot unsee. What they have found in Christ in the right side up is changing how they see the value of everything they have while they live in the upside down. And so I think that, that we're faced with a question as we consider Mary's actions here. If we claim that Jesus has broken into our lives as he did Mary's, has anything in our life had its value altered because of what we have found in the person of Jesus? Has anything in your life had its value altered because of what you found in the person of Jesus? For Mary, this wasn't a mental exercise, just mentally assenting to the value of Jesus. It had earthly, real-time impact in her actions. Like, where does the rubber of Jesus' value meet the road of what we treasure? Do you think it might mean that in suburbia, where we build our kingdoms of seclusion and precisely edged lawns, that maybe the value of our security and comfort has to change, has to be turned on its head. I mean, when's the last time a neighbor was allowed to intrude on your life? Better yet, when's the last time you invited the intrusion? When's the last time you were the intruder stepping into their life, on their turf, to love and serve and speak of Christ? What about this? What does the value of Jesus mean for the way that you value other people's approval? This one disturbs me. The siren call that I hear for approval and acceptance is most oftentimes louder than anything else that I hear. Its draw is strong. It changes the way that I act in front of people. But I, I am called to repentance by Mary's actions here. I mean, these actions would have been embarrassing. It was extravagance. It was an emotional display. It was done in a self-effacing manner. It was in a very public setting. I mean, she's putting herself out there, allowing people like Judas the opportunity to observe what she's doing and then make their disapproval known. But in her mind, what does she care? What she has seen in Christ makes Judas' approval less than an afterthought. Has the value of Jesus changed the way you think about investing? Sometimes I think about investments, about how to invest wisely. 
But if I'm not careful, my idea of investing can look and sound a lot like people who believe their only treasure is in this world, in this age. Where decisions in life only make sense if they add to the bottom line. Let's just, let's agree on something this morning. Let's point out that Mary's use of this fragrance decidedly did not add to her bottom line. It dramatically took away from herself, her, her net worth. I'm not, I'm not condoning or advertising sinful kinds of waste or, or lack of planning or anything, right? Poverty has its own issues, and, and it's not going to bring you any kind of righteousness. But there has to be space in your life for you to say, you know what? Stewarding our earthly wealth to make Christ known it's probably not going to add to our bottom line. And yet, it is a wise investment because God's in it. If you're unable to identify anything in your life that's had its value altered, then it's a good and healthy question to ask yourself, have I actually seen the value of Jesus? Have I identified him as the treasure hidden in a field that allows me to sell everything I own? Our values have to be turned upside down if we've seen the value of Christ. And when you do that, what you're doing is making that tear in the dimension bigger and bigger. Ushering in the life and hope that can be found in Christ. But... As we seek to respond like this to Christ, there is a subtle error that all of us can easily make and probably have made. Uh, And that error is this. We can replace God with God things. We can replace God with God things. And we're warned of this error in the way Judas responds to Mary's display. Read verses 4 through 8 with me. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you, but you don't always have me. A couple things are going on with Judas here. First, He's simply being disingenuous, right? Uh, the text says he's saying one thing, but under his words lie this hidden meaning. He, he says he wants to help the poor, but really he just wants access to the group's cash so that he can line his own pockets. So pretty blatant indication that Judas has not encountered in Christ what Mary has. Judas treasures the very things that Mary is willing to give up. But let's set that aside for a moment. Let's pretend John didn't give us this, this uh, hindsight and this insight into the at- intent of Judas's heart. And pretend that we were standing there with everybody else and all we heard were Judas's words. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why was this ointment not sold for a year's worth of wages and given to the poor? If you were standing there in real time, just like everyone else, and you didn't know Judas's intent, what would you think about those words? 
I mean, it sounds like Judas has changed values just like Mary. Shouldn't we be helping the poor? Yeah, you know, Judas, you've got a point. That sounds, that sounds wise. In fact, the more that I think about it, how foolish of you, Mary, to be so wasteful. How could she just pour out a year's worth of wages on someone's feet when she knows very well there are poor people out there starving and in need of assistance? Shame on you, Mary. You just think it, seeking attention from Jesus? Do you care about these suffering people? I would be willing to bet all of us would have said something very similar to that. It sounds wise. It sounds compassionate. All of us have raised our fists and pounded the table over things that sound good and religious and right. I bet all of us have been indignant about things that we felt certain were pleasing to God. But Jesus' words in verse 8 reveal this subtle difference between Mary's and Judas's actions. Verse 8 says, The poor you always have with you. You don't always have me. And this is a really telling statement for Jesus to make. After all, the gospel of the kingdom that he's been walking around and preaching to people thus far has paid some pretty special attention to the poor. In Mark's gospel in chapter 10, when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, what's the one thing, the one thing Jesus said he lacks? He says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the who? The poor. Luke 6.20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But now when Judas suggests that Mary's ointment could have been put to better use in service of the poor, Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed it, Judas. You're wrong. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor are always there for you to help, but I won't always be here. What's going on? Jesus' concern is that people know and worship him. And Judas has taken this good thing, helping the poor, and he has made it the only thing. He's missed the fact that the worship of Jesus is the end goal of everything for Jesus' people. And social justice, help for the poor, is a form of that worship. Jesus does not equal social justice. You do social justice because you love Jesus. Mary is making her affection for Jesus known. Judas has just created a new law to follow. Has nothing to do with knowing Christ or seeing his value. He has replaced Jesus with Jesus things. It's so subtle. Here's one common way that we do this, or at least that I've done, we elevate our methods over our Messiah. We elevate our methods over our Messiah. Think about all the things that we practice. 
uh, as followers of Jesus, both at gatherings like this or, or normal routines of life, things that aren't necessarily commanded by Scripture, but are tools that we use, methods that we use to follow after Christ, methods that are unique to our culture, unique to our generation, unique to our ethnic makeup, unique to our language, unique to our economic status, unique to our preferences and interests, things like the songs that we sing, the style of those songs, the liturgy we follow, how well oiled the service is or is not, what curriculum we use in Trinity Kids, community groups and how they operate, Homeschool versus private school versus public school, parenting philosophies, our favorite little pet ministries that we protect and spend so much time on, podcasts and their preachers and their preaching style, favorite authors. All these are tools, they're methods that we're hopefully using in honest attempts at responding to the treasure that we have found in Christ but sometimes we take those methods of worshiping and we start weaponizing. And we weaponize them against each other, like Judas does here. And we make noise like Judas. Don't you know you should have done things this way, Mary? We take matters of Christian freedom and then we use them to bind each other. And then because of our volume and our bluster about these things, we don't hear Jesus saying, leave that person alone. They're doing a beautiful thing. Helping the poor is good, Judas. It's just not the same thing as knowing me. Don't try and follow Jesus like Judas followed him. Instead, and, and this is the end of what I have for us this morning, humbly follow Jesus as a responder. You're a responder. You're not building a religious bridge to get to Jesus. He came to you. He's God become man. He lived perfectly because you could not. And he died a sinner's death so that you would not. And he was raised so that you too might be raised to be with him. And by his spirit, he's continually pursuing you. Everything that you do is a response to his love. Secondly, let the value of Jesus, the person, not just his things, not the things that surround him, but his person, let the value of Jesus put all of your other values in order. I mean, this is a continual thing, right, to the day we die. We've got thousands of values that are out of whack. But let me say this this morning. Everything you have or could have pales in comparison to the life and the hope and the love that you find in the person of Jesus. It pales. And if we see Jesus like that, then we can be honest when we replace Jesus with Jesus' things. We can be honest and we can repent and we can turn back to our treasure. Look, we live, we live in a land of decay. We live in the upside down. But in Christ, the right side up has broken in. 
And by his death on the cross, Jesus purchased and secured a place in the right side up for everyone who will trust in him. That should change everything for you. Not because we have a new set of laws to follow, like Judas, but because we have seen the incredible value of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help uh, to see Jesus like Mary saw him. Not because Mary was better at seeing than we are, but um, because you broke into her life. You opened her eyes so that she could see. And so we ask you to do the same for us. we ask that you would show us your incredible value, the resurrection and the life, the one who raises the dead and who was raised from the dead. Lord, I pray that uh, as you do that for us, I pray that you would put our values in order. A lot, of, a lot of the things we worship, a lot of the things we value, they're upside down. We don't even know it until we see what's available in the right side up. We pray that as we discover these things, it would have earthly, real-time impact. We pray that our community here would receive the fruit of you breaking into our lives. I pray they would receive love and service and help. I pray they would receive our hospitality. All because we're looking to the value of Christ. And Lord, we pray you'd protect us from following Jesus like Judas, where we just make a bunch of new laws to follow. We take the good things that you instruct us to do and we turn them into you and we worship them instead of you. Forgive us where we've done that, Lord. Humble us. Help us to repent and turn back to our greatest treasure. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.